Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. All right, hey everyone. My name is Alex, and I have the honor of preaching God's Word today. Um, For those of you that are new here, um, and I wanted to just say hi to you. If you've uh, joined us over the last week or two, or we're really seven or eight weeks into this now, um, I wanted to just let you know that if you live here in the Seattle area, uh, and you're tuning in and you're interested in our church, we really want to be intentional with following up with you if you'd like us to do so. And so uh, if you would, go to redemptionseattle.com, click on the About tab, and right under there, there is a Connect form for you to fill out. And if you fill that out, our team will follow up with you right away and help get you any information that you might need uh, about our church. And so with that being said, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 9, verse 19, section B, the second half of that verse. And we're going to go down uh, a little ways, and we're going to cover some of Saul's earliest journeys as he preaches the gospel, runs for his life, is rejected by the earliest Christians down in Jerusalem. Barnabas brings him in. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, it's a powerful story and I'm excited to share it with you all today. Uh, so let's begin. Uh, and as we do, I want to just point something out uh, for those of you that read your New Testament closely. And one day we will do a a New Testament survey course in which we can kind of spend extra time parsing out some of these some of these things. I used to teach New Testament survey in university back in Atlanta, and um, these would be some of the really fascinating discussions. But we don't have time to get into them here in the format of a sermon. But in a more classroom setting, we can do that uh, in the future, God willing. But if you read your New Testament closely, you'll see here that Luke begins with Saul is converted. And then immediately goes and preaches in the synagogues. But if you read that in light of uh, Paul's early letter to the Galatians, um, he writes in chapter 1, he mentions, I was converted, but then I didn't go anywhere other than down to the Arabian desert, and I spent time there uh, first. And so then the question becomes, did Luke get it wrong? Did, Did he actually go directly to the synagogue, or did he seclude himself for a period of time and then come back to the synagogue and it both stories actually stand and so rather than tease all of that out here i'm just going to show you just if we can pull up on the screen uh, just seven points of uh, uh, just to give you kind of a timeline of what uh saul's uh early conversion and journey looks like and so uh that should be there on your screen now simon kistemacher new testament commentary acts page 346 He summarizes it this way. One, he is converted on the way to Damascus. Two, there's a brief stay in Damascus. Three is when he is secluded in Arabia. Four is uh, he returns to Damascus for some time. Five is he escapes to Jerusalem. Six, he meets with the apostles. Seven, he then departs for Syria and Cilicia. So that's a brief synopsis of, of the time, or not just timeline, but the the, the chronology of Saul's travel. So, let's begin. It says here, in verse 19b, uh, For some days he was, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Okay, 
So now he shows up in the synagogues where he had formerly received uh, written authority from Caiaphas down in Jerusalem to now persecute, arrest, and jail wayward Jewish Christians who no longer believed in traditional, strict, orthodox monotheism, but now are worshiping God as a triune God, though still monotheistic. That's what we believe as Christians. We have one God and three persons. Saul saw that as blasphemy and worthy of persecution, death, and being jailed. So he got permission. He now has permission to go to these synagogues. However, on the way to the synagogues to arrest these Christians and persecute them, he encounters Jesus and becomes a Christian himself. He arrives in the very place that he sought to persecute and shows up not to persecute, but to sing to Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to proclaim Jesus. And the thing he is so concerned about in the proclamation of Jesus is not that Jesus is a miracle worker or a good teacher, not that Jesus is a great philosopher or ethicist, not that Jesus is a charismatic wisdom sage or some kind of liberation theologian. <laughs> Rather, what he is primarily concerned about at the earliest stages of his preaching is the identity of Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? That is the biggest question you'll ever answer in your life. Who is the man that split time into B.C. and Anno Domini? Who is Jesus? And Saul goes into the synagogue, proclaims to both Jews, who are still very orthodox, and Jewish Christians, and he says, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God's own Son. In this Jewish context, that would have been provocative language, shocking language, language that would have resonated with them in a way that, that would have shaken them to the core. Um, in the Jewish world, uh, the, the old adage uh, about a son, you know, uh, father, you know, the son being just like the father, yeah, is, is true, is very true. That is, in the Jewish world, if you grew up and your dad was a baker, you'd become a baker. If your dad was a hunter, you'd become a hunter. If your dad was a blacksmith, you'd be a blacksmith. If dad was a farmer, you'd be a farmer. If dad was a school teacher, you'd be a school teacher. Whatever your father does, sons would grow up and do exactly that, which is very different to us today. You can have a dad that's an accountant and then you can go to school and become a philosopher. It's very, you don't have to follow in the steps of your father these days here in the West the way they did in ancient Israel. Well, this is what got Jesus in so much trouble. If you remember over in John 5, um, Jesus uh, was working miracles, working on the Sabbath day himself. And as he works on the Sabbath, he is confronted by the Jewish authorities. Why are you working on Sabbath? And he comes back with what? I'm working because my father's working. And they were cut to the heart over this and said, oh, we, we, we must put him to death because this man makes himself equal or one with God to be father-like son in the truest sense. So in the Jewish synagogue with these new Christians they're worshiping, Paul's concerned and wants everyone in that room to understand Jesus is one with God, one with Yahweh, one with I am, one with the creator, one with the, the right? He is one with God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God.
This was also shocking language if it were to be heard outside of the synagogue in the Roman world because Caesar Augustus had already hailed himself to be the son of God. Recall that he, 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 he had exercised such dominion, such authority, such power in, in the Roman Empire that he gave himself the divine title of being the son of God. So Saul is using powerful, provocative language. He wants everyone to be crystal clear on the identity of Jesus. All right. Now, it says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so there's the Jews present in the synagogue. There's the Jewish Christians present in the synagogue. The Jews that are there say, wait, what's this man doing here? Why is he he here proclaiming Jesus? Isn't he the one that has authority from Jerusalem, from Caiaphas down south, to come and eradicate uh, these heretics, these blasphemers, these people who are tweaking our theology? Doesn't he have authority to do that? Isn't he the one that makes these, makes, brings havoc on these people? They're utterly shocked. And it says that Saul increased more and more in strength, meaning he's growing uh, spiritually. He is, he is spiritually increasing in strength and in his, in his ability to, um, to articulate who Jesus is in the gospel. It says here that he, would, uh, he confounded which is a, the Greek word literally means uh, basically to pour together. Next time you're cooking, that's where that word. To pour together, to mix up. I mean, he confounded their thoughts. He, he mixed their thoughts up. He broke things out of what they had traditionally understood. He had confounded them by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So by, by proving here, he... He obviously didn't bring Jesus physically out of heaven and say, Hi, everyone, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go ahead, Son of God, talk for yourself. He doesn't do that. He doesn't offer this kind of physical proof for everyone in the synagogue. But rather, so how, what does Luke mean by he proved that Jesus was the Son of God? This word proving here has to do with uh, helping people. Uh, it means literally kind of to, to bring ideas together for people to draw conclusions, right? And so he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Well, what's he, what's he doing? How is he doing that? Oh, well, he's, he's opening up his Old Testament scriptures and pointing to passage after passage, showing them that what they read about Adam in the garden has something to do with the second Adam in Jesus. That what was going on in Father Abraham and the promise and the covenant and all this stuff there is fulfilled in Jesus. That what happens in the rescue of the world with Noah and the flood, Jesus is the ark. (laughs) What happens with Moses isn't to end with Moses, but Moses talked about a prophet like him that would be raised up in the book of uh, Numbers. And so, again, uh, that there was more than King David's dynasty, but there there was the capital K, king of the universe. His reign and rule is what mattered. Paul is proving from Scripture time and time again that Jesus does not show up on the scene divorced from, unannounced, or uh, unexpected. 
but rather he had been embedded in story after story after story throughout. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. That's how you find Jesus in the Old Testament. You don't have to go digging and force him in there, but rather read the text and see, oh my gosh, there's more here than just a story about David. But this David story points to Jesus. That's how Paul's doing this. He is confounding the, the, the Jews with, with how he's working with Scripture. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. We don't know how. Maybe it was a vision, a miracle. Maybe one of his disciples told him. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the hand and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Okay. So now Saul is on the run. He's taken, he's put into a basket. And so, you know, kids, if you're thinking about a grown man being put into a basket, it's not a, um, it's not like a, a laundry basket. You need to think more like something maybe the size of maybe your, your recycling receptacle outside, the big blue can, something like that. So he is taken at night, he hides, he has to wait for the right hour to escape this. He's, he's, he's about to run for his life. He climbs into the basket. He has disciples there that he's been teaching, discipling, mentoring, training. They take him out at night, they lower him over this big wall, and he gets to the ground. And now he's on the run. Luke doesn't tell us that anybody was with him. He was alone. He's 130 miles north in Damascus. He's coming south to Jerusalem. And I can't imagine what that must have been like, the, the thoughts that must have gone through his head in that time after he's been faithfully preaching. Now he is on the run for preaching the very gospel that he at one time persecuted. He must have been full of faith and certainly fear was nearby if he bumps into any of the Jewish authorities they'll have him put to death for sure and yet he can't go back up to Damascus either because the, the Jews that are hostile there will you know persecute him put him to death and so he goes south and he wants to enter the church uh, and seeks to speak with the church the Christians there uh, knowing full well how he'll probably be received or not received. And here's what it says. When he had come to Jerusalem, he gets there. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. All right. So Saul now tries to join the local church. He shows up. And just to be completely honest, somebody that violently persecuted the church if I were in that early congregation and Saul shows up and says hey I met Jesus and there was a blinding light and Ananias healed me and I've been preaching in the synagogues in the north and I'm, I'm actually one of you right now I don't know that I would readily jump to my feet give him a hug and say welcome home Saul so glad you're a part of our, our church family uh, I think I would be like the majority of the believers right there just going yeah, no, man. Nope, nope, nope. 
Maybe that, that's a nice story, but no, no. That's, uh, I know that's how I'd, I'd respond. I'm willing to bet a lot of you would respond you know, the same way. He did not see and experience a welcome from the church. So now he's in no man's land. He is an unfaithful Jew, according to the Jewish authorities, right? But he can't join the church that he loves so much now. He is completely alone. He's on an island all by himself. A terrifying place. A scary place. But Barnabas, here's Barnabas, you remember him from chapter 4? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and who had spoken to him and, and, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So remember, Barnabas, Barnabas was the one in chapter 4 who was a wealthy man, had property, sold it, took all of the money and gave it to the apostles so that they could distribute it and help those who were in, in real need in the church. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He was full of joy. He was a, he was a happy, generous, selfless, probably contagious disciple of Jesus in the church. That was Barnabas. Barnabas was likely in that number of Christians who were afraid of Paul going, no, no, we're, you, you're not going to be welcome here. He was probably in that crowd, that church, but he must have had to develop some kind of relationship in order to then go and advocate for Paul to the apostles. I don't know how much time passed or what that actually looked like, but Barnabas, there was something within Barnabas there was a check with him, within him to go, hold on. Jesus walks on water. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus ascended. Jesus made Pentecost happen by sending the Holy Spirit. And Jesus can be stopped by nothing. Jesus can do anything. Oh my gosh. Does Jesus save murderers? Yeah, think about the men on the crosses next to him. King David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. Oh my gosh. Is Jesus, has Jesus really done something? That must be what's going on here. So he goes, has a conversation with Paul or Saul, and they talk. And I imagine they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk question and answer and question and answer and tears and stillness and silence maybe prayer I don't know but we can imagine what do you do now then Barnabas believes him because yeah I believe you And that's where friendship is born. You see, like uh, in C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, he, he talks about four kinds of love. And, and the most important, most, I think, powerful one that he describes is 
friendship. And he says that friendship is born precisely the moment when two companions look at one another and one says, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. They're having that conversation. You too? You met Jesus? I thought I was, you're, I thought I was the one. I, I, you're like me. <laughs> so you're traveling the empire, like giving your life up for Jesus? Oh, I did that. We must be friends. It's the same thing that happens with, you know, they have a common savior. I was thinking about this last night, sitting on my couch, going, how do I say this in a way that maybe even our kids could understand it? And I was reminded of, you know, in Toy Story, it's, it's Buzz and Woody. <laughs> it's what makes an old cowboy doll become best friends with this new cool space ranger. They've got nothing in common at all except the fact that they have a common owner who wrote his name on the bottom of their boots. Barnabas and Saul realize we have a common savior who's written his name on our hearts. And so Barnabas then goes to the apostles, to Peter and James and John and all the rest, that are there in Jerusalem and advocates for Saul. Gentlemen, this man's a real brother. This man belongs to Jesus. This man walks in the light. This man's repented of his sin. This man, this man is bold. Where do you hear him talk about Jesus? It's crazy. It's like he's crucified with Christ and he's now living by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. Like, you got to hear this guy talk. You got to hear. He's saying things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying things like, oh, these present sufferings aren't to be compared with the glory that's to come. You got to hear this guy talk. This guy's talking about the glory of God in the Son of God. You've got to believe him. So Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the guys are, all right. Okay, <laughs> and so then, it's, then it moves into, it says, verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And so, now, now Saul has authority and permission to now join the church, to worship Jesus, to take communion, and to proclaim Jesus. Saul has friends now. Saul's accepted now. Saul doesn't just know Jesus now. Saul has the church that he gets to love and serve and be a part of. Isn't it so good? You know, the hero of this story right now, by the way, is not the, the generous, loving, hospitable, welcoming Barnabas. Though that's beautiful and a wonderful example. And the hero of the story is not this fireball, zealous, theologian, self-denying, self-sacrificing Saul who's preaching Jesus boldly. Those are not the heroes. The hero of the story is Jesus. Jesus, 
Jesus atoned for Barnabas' sin, and Jesus atoned for Saul's, and Jesus regenerated Barnabas and gave him a generous heart, and Jesus regenerated Saul's and gave, gave him a, a, a passion that could not be quenched. Jesus is the hero here. All this is happening because of who Jesus is and how Jesus works. So Paul goes, and he's preaching boldly, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are those, the, the Greeks that were about advancing Greco-Roman thought and culture. And he disputes against them. He argues against them and their philosophy and their pantheon of gods. And, no, no, no. Jesus is the Son of God. He, he disputes with them. And it says, and they were seeking to kill him. So now there's more people that want to kill Paul. And the brothers learned this. And they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. That's where he's from. So now, so he goes down south, and then they launch him off to Tarsus. He's going to travel, and he's going to spend roughly 10 years in his hometown in Tarsus. So this section concludes here. The church throughout all of Judea and Galilee, that was where Jesus grew up, the little fishing villages, And Samaria had peace and was being built up. The thing that Jesus said would happen in Acts 1.8, didn't he say that? He said, uh, go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's, it's happening. The gospel's getting out. And the church had peace. And it was being built up. You know, I get to have a lot of Zoom calls like all of you. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so looking forward to no more Zoom. Though, I'm looking forward to seeing whoever I see this week on Zoom. But, you know, when we get to be face-to-face. -face. But one thing I hear again and again in this time, being with our people, is that our people have peace. Not everyone has perfect health, physical peace. Not everyone feels financially Peace. Not everyone feels relationally at peace. Not entirely. Not everyone. But overall, in our church, there's a lot of peace. Because there's a lot of faith and trust in a God who can do anything and is working all things according to his purposes. There is peace in redemption. I'm so thankful to be a part of it and to be a recipient of God's peace with you. The last thing it says is this. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church expanded and grew. But it wasn't about drawing a crowd or some kind of gimmick. The church grew because it walked in the fear of the Lord. Not a, not a charismatic speaker, not this great band, not this light show thing, or even like a big beautiful building like this thing. That's not how the church grew, and that's not how the church actually grows. You can draw crowds with things and talents. That's not what's being, happening here. The church, the capital C church, grows when everyone, leaders and parishioners both, from the oldest in the room to the youngest that walk with Jesus, 
when we walk in the fear of the Lord, which is a way of saying, we're in this together, and we're here to honor you, Jesus, and we're here to bless you, Jesus, and we don't want to disobey you, Jesus. We want to give you the glory and the honor and the praise and the lifestyles that you deserve because you bought us with your blood and you filled us with your spirit. We want to honor you and walk in the fear of the Lord. We want to walk in real wisdom. That's what the church was doing. And so because the church was willing to be faithfully present to God and themselves and one another, they grew in real depth and in growing in their depth. God saw that and responds in favor and says, I want to grow that also in breadth. And not only did they walk in the fear of the Lord, but they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you need to be reminded again today, but the Holy Spirit's role in your life is one to comfort you. Sure, He convicts us of sin, but He is the comforter. He's here to be present to you. He knows what's going on with you. He knows the secret skeleton, the stuff in your heart, the stuff you don't want anybody to find out about. He sees you, loves you, and is here to be present to you and comfort you. Not scare you, shake you, deride you, or shame you, or anything like that. He is here to comfort you. So that's good news. I love you, Redemption. See you soon. Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.